Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. Have you ever had an experience where you have jumped into a project and you've gotten pretty far down the tracks on this project? You've worked on it, maybe it's days or weeks or months, and, and put a lot of time and effort only to come to a point where you realize that you can't go any further because you forgot a very important initial step. And, and you had to backtrack back to that step because everything else doesn't really make sense until you go back and fix that. And you've probably had that experience if you're human. Because uh, it, it tends to happen to all of us, in particular to people who are highly you know, action-oriented. Those that like to just jump in and get stuff done can sometimes get out there ahead of themselves. And maybe it's a baking project or something like that where you've tried something new and then you get to the point where you're dumping it in the trash can because you forgot something at the beginning. Or maybe you've gotten a box that has said, some assembly required. And you understand exactly what that means. You know, and you're like, well, how hard can it be? It's a desk from Ikea which you've had that experience if you built anything from Ikea. But I feel like sometimes guys are hardwired to build things and they don't need instructions. At least that's what they think. And, and we can tend to do that as well, right? You know, I, you don't need to be a structural engineer and then you get to the end and you're like, wow, I wonder why they packaged so many extra parts with this product that <laughs> didn't get used. We're going to talk this morning about those kind of key first steps, those, those foundational things that we need to do so that we can continue on in our journey, because the right first steps help us to get to the finish line well. The right first steps that we take oftentimes keep us from missteps, keep us from harm. The right first steps keep us from having those stories in our lives that we're really afraid to share with other people. For instance, I have great friends that I uh, performed their wedding ceremony. They were former students and they're great friends. About two years ago, uh, they had a wedding at Mount Hood at Timberline Lodge. Beautiful setting. It was February 22nd, and so the weather could have been a mess, but it was just gorgeous, and the sun was shining, and the wedding was beautiful. The next day, they went on their honeymoon, and they decided that the first thing that they wanted to do as a couple to express their undying love for each other was to get matching tattoos. So I always thought that's what the ring was for. But, you know, the times, they are changing. So tattoos is great. So the guy drew up this design. He drew this great kind of outline of Mount Hood since they got married at Timberline. And underneath, he put the date. And they go to the tattoo parlor. And he's going to get his first, you know, he's going to stare at his wife and express his love while he's getting stabbed in the arm with a needle. Now, I have a picture of the tattoo here. So I told you, the two stands for February, the second month. And the next is the 22nd, but if you're good with Roman numerals, <laughs> you realize that that says the 17th. So what he did was he expressed his undying love and devotion to his new bride, but with the wrong date on his arm. Uh, he had written it up correctly, but when he gave it to the tattoo artist to make the stencil for it, it got put on wrong. And when the guy stenciled it to his arm, he was so absolutely concerned about the location of it. As a matter of fact, he even had it changed once that he never noticed that the guy had turned one of his X's into a V. And he said afterwards, he just had this sick feeling. Can you imagine looking down and realizing that you just permanently put something on your arm that was the wrong date? 
It's not like you can go back and get remarried on that date. Now, they ended up fixing it. And honestly, I asked him if I could share this story with you guys. And he said, yes, as long as you take me to lunch. And I was like, well, that's, that's a win-win. I get to eat and share your story, which is great. But we want to be mindful of important first steps. Because what's the first step in getting a tattoo? Like, the initial step is after you ask, will I want this in 50 years, you say to yourself, is it absolutely correct? Before they permanently put this on me, is this correct? That's your first step. We want to be mindful of these key foundational things that we need to do in our lives. Because oftentimes, we get out there and we get ahead of ourselves. Oftentimes, we're ready, fire, aim people. Because we're people of action. We want to do stuff. We want to get stuff done. And we miss the important beginning things. And we get tattoos on our lives that we don't really want or need. And we're going to find that this morning in the book of Nehemiah, one of those key, huge initial steps. We're kicking off a new series, Nehemiah, from rubble to revival. You know, and in a very real, practical way, we're going to look at the city of Jerusalem, how it went from rubble to revival. And the city was just destroyed. It was in ruins. If you can picture in your head, maybe you've seen a picture of a bombed out city or something that just has debris everywhere and, and what it would take to bring that back to a functioning city. We're also going to see from rubble to revival in the lives of the people of that city. And then we'll want to grab some of those principles and put them into our own lives about how we can go from rubble to revival. So we're going to look at a little bit of the background in Nehemiah. Before we jump into the story itself, I want to show you this and just talk through some of the history. Now, honestly, maybe when this comes up and all these dates and names come up, this is where you just blank out. You're like, I'll check back in when that slide goes off the screen. But this is important for us. It's important for us to lean in and kind of understand what was going on culturally. So starting on the left side, in 587 BC, Babylon came in and they conquered Israel. They laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and they took and carried people into exile. So the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem became displaced. And then after that, in in the Bible, we've got stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and some of those stories after they were exiled and displaced. Now, in 539, Persia came and conquered Babylon. A guy by the name of Cyrus the Great led Persia to conquer Babylon. And that's important in this story because once Cyrus the Great began to rule the land, he began to slowly allow the displaced people to return to their homes. They could go back to their cities. They could rebuild their shrines. They could rebuild their temples. Now, there was a caveat to that. Once they rebuilt the shrines and temples, they had to offer praise and prayers to Cyrus the Great for Persia. But they were allowed to worship in their own ways. And so slowly, they began to trickle back. And right then, immediately after that, we see people trickling back into Jerusalem. Initially, a guy named Zerubbabel, he was a political leader, and you read about him in Haggai and Zechariah. He came back and started to rebuild some of the city, started to rebuild the temple. And then, several years later, uh, as you march through the story, by the way, you kind of go king to king to king, and, and the book of Esther's in the middle there because the king at the time was a guy by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes was the king, and he was married to Esther. And now Xerxes' son was Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is who we're going to read about uh, in our story today, even. But that's kind of the progression of kings. But after Zerubbabel began to restore the temple, Ezra came along. Ezra is the book that immediately precedes Nehemiah in Scripture. Ezra was a high priest, and he came along, and he began to rebuild community. He began to rebuild. He would 
gather the scriptures, the Torah, the text, and he would rebuild community. And then after Ezra came along, Nehemiah comes along. Nehemiah comes along and he begins to rebuild the walls of the city. And that's kind of the progression of where it is that we are going today. That's the historical background. Now, Nehemiah was a great guy, but he was born in exile. He was part of a displaced people group. And he was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. That was his job. And I don't know if you know what it means to be a cupbearer. It's this beautifully dangerous job where you get to taste a lot of the king's wine, but you're tasting it to see if it's poison. So I mean, there's that part of your job too. And I don't know how the whole system worked. I don't know if he just drank it in front of everybody and then they just waited to see if he keeled over and died. And after a certain amount of time, they were like, well, that looks fine. He's okay. That was part of his job. But also in history, oftentimes the cupbearer had other responsibilities. Sometimes he held the signet ring for the king. Sometimes he was responsible for the financial accounts of the king. He would have been chosen for his trustworthiness. He would have been chosen for his appearance because the king didn't want anybody in his court that didn't look good. But he would have had the king's ear, and he would have been a man of influence. But I think it's also important for us to remember as well that he was less like an employee and more like a slave. And that's important for the things that he's going to do in his life. And we're going to see that Nehemiah was an action hero, that he was a man of action, that he was a get-it-done guy, that he was going to just get out there and do things. And so if you would turn with me, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. If you want to grab a Bible from the pew there in front of you, we don't usually turn to Nehemiah that much. It's on page 768, and we're going to get a glimpse of his story that is in many ways very much like our own story. And not that any of us are cupbearers to kings. I mean, if you are, well done. But the, the thing that's much like our story is there's a lot of beautiful things that happen in his story and a lot of difficult things. There's success and there's defeat. But all along in the story of Nehemiah, we're going to see the hand of God in his life. There are no blatantly obvious miracles of God in the book of Nehemiah. It's just the subtle moving of God in the lives of these people. And Nehemiah is this wonderful mix of the spiritual and the practical that we're going to see here. So Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Now, we have a concept of time mostly because the Babylonians and the Persians kept great records. So this month is kind of November, December in the year 446 BC. And he is in Susa. Susa is the winter home of the Persian kings. And uh, I actually Google mapped driving directions this past week from Susa to Jerusalem. It's about a thousand miles. Doesn't look like a great trip. I don't recommend it, but it's about, they're about a thousand miles away. So that's the distance that he has from what he's about to hear about. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me and some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So he says, your people, our people that have returned there, that have gone back there, it's a mess. 
You see, we read in Ezra chapter 4 that they began rebuilding. But that rebuilding that they were doing had been put down, most likely by King Artaxerxes. Jerusalem had a reputation for being a little bit of a troublemaking town. And so they tended to kind of put down things that were being built there. So Nehemiah's boss kind of put this down. We also read in Nehemiah chapter 5 that there was a famine. There was a famine, so they had to sell fields and vineyards and homes and sometimes even their children into slavery to survive. And the walls were broken down and the gates were burned. And so they were defenseless. And so this was a tragedy. This was an injustice. This was a difficult thing for him to hear. And so what was his response going to be? This man of action, this guy who we're going to see gets things done. What's his initial response to this news? If you look at verse 4, it says, when I heard this, I sat down at my computer and I logged onto Facebook. And I just want to see if you're still with me. Thank you. Right? He didn't, he didn't log on anywhere and post anything. Although sometimes I feel like we think that's our first response because that's a way that we can get our voice heard. That's a way that we can kind of get our opinion out there in a situation where maybe we feel helpless to act. We feel like we can post something about it. And it doesn't say that he gathered some friends who were like-minded so they could have a heated, angry discussion about those people. And it doesn't say that he kind of spiraled downward into depression because he was a 1,000 miles away and there was no way he could ever get there and there was no way he could ever do anything. And it also doesn't say that he just said, wow, well, stinks to be them. At least I'm taken care of here. It says that he did something hugely important, this initial first step. He says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. That his immediate response this, to this, his people, even though he hadn't been there, he sat down and he mourned for them and he wept for them and he prayed for them. And it's a great response. And it's a great first step. You see, this book is going to be full of action. This book is going to be full of amazing things that he does, but he chooses at the outset to pray. And I don't want to miss this. I don't want to pass over this because I think so often we want to jump to what the action step actually is, and we miss prayer because we don't actually think it's action. And if you can grab one thing from this morning, one concept, it would be that prayer is that action step. John Wesley said it this way. He said, prayer is where the action is. I love that idea. Prayer is where the action is. Prayer is our key, foundational, primary, initial action step. Before you jump in headlong, pray about it. Before you post, pray about it. Before you have that angry conversation, pray about it. I was talking to a guy uh, last week about this idea, and he gave me this quote. We'll just list him as wise older man. Uh, it was Steve Fowler. <laughs> so Steve had found this quote, and I thought we'd just quote him as wise older man. But there's wisdom here. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. You can do more than pray after you've prayed. After you've prayed, then yes, take those action steps. But before you pray, there's really nothing else that you can do of greater value than praying. Prayer is where the action is. But do we see it that way? Do we see prayer that way? Do we see it as an action step? 
I mean, let's take just a very practical example. With all the divisiveness in our country right now, with the toxic environment that seems just so prevalent everywhere, is our first response to these things when we hear them, when new stuff comes up, it feels like all the time, is our first response to pray? Or is it to post? Or is it to make a phone call? Or is it to roll our eyes? Or is it to try and think of some action step that we can take outside of prayer? And honestly, as I've been studying this, I just keep thinking and asking myself the same question over and over again. Am I a prayer first person? Are we a prayer first people? Because that speaks a lot to how we view prayer. Maybe the deeper question is, do we believe prayer even works? Do we believe prayer is even an action step? Because a lot of people would say, prayer isn't where the action is, action is where the action is. And prayer's not action. We don't feel like prayer is getting something done. We have a generation, a younger generation, that is committed to cause, that is committed to action. Do they see prayer as action? Because a lot of people don't. Recently, the Huffington Post had this article. Let's take action instead of praying about it. And what the author of this article was saying was he was railing against the National Day of Prayer and the money used to promote the National Day of Prayer. And he was saying, why would you pay to promote prayer when we could pay and actually do something real? In December of 2015, New York Daily News had this headline, God isn't fixing this. It was in response to the tragedy in San Bernardino where a lot of people lost their lives. And a lot of important government people were sending out tweets that said, you're in our thoughts and prayers. And the New York Daily News is saying, what good is that doing? As a matter of fact, the first line of the article said, Prayers aren't working. It's up to us. We need to do something about it because prayer seems passive oftentimes. Prayer seems less like making things happen and more like waiting for things to happen. But prayer is making things happen. Prayer is moving things. Prayer is where the action is. Tennyson said it this way, He said, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of, that more things are worked out by prayer, more things are achieved by prayer than we will ever comprehend. Our prayers are more far-reaching than we can possibly understand. And we're going to see it step by step in the life of Nehemiah, that he is a prayer-first guy. He doesn't say, well, I've tried everything else. I guess it's time to pray. And so we're going to take a look at his prayer for just a minute this morning. And in this prayer, it's this kind of compilation of five months of praying. You see, he heard this news in November and December. And in chapter 2 at the beginning, it says he kind of reacted. And we'll see it even at the end of this prayer. The response happens in kind of March, April. So there's this five months of him praying and crying out to God and listening. And what he is praying reveals who he believes God to be and how he wants to live. It's a prayer that refocuses and recenters and reminds us and and calls us to courage and action. And so I want to take a look at four things in this prayer that we can begin to pray as we make prayer our initial action step. The first is found in verse 5. It says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. And I love that he starts his prayer this way. He starts by putting things back in proper order. 
right? The world is messy. He heard of this injustice. Things seem out of control, and yet he's saying, God, you are still in heaven. And God, you are great and awesome. And the Hebrew words in this passage for great and awesome literally mean great and awesome. That's what it means, that God is just big, and he's fierce, and he's powerful, and he's in control. And I love that that's his view of God, and I love that he starts here, because we can forget that sometimes. I mean, I would ask you, how do you view God? And even more, like, what's your picture of God? I don't know if you've ever, if you have this mental picture of who God is. You can't really Google it, right? Google image search God, because that's just weird. Don't go down that rabbit trail. But in our heads, oftentimes we have this picture of God, right? He's wearing a huge, really bright white robe. And he's got long, flowing white hair for some reason that's always blowing, whether there's a breeze or not. His hair, God just works that way. And he's got a white beard, and he's wearing Jesus sandals to represent his son. And uh, he's sitting on a throne the size of Texas, right? And he's kind of like this grandfatherly figure where you know he's good, and you know you can trust him, and he's always generous and loving and full of great advice on how to treat other people and how to get along. But if you listen to the world too long, then you can start to kind of buy into this idea that he's losing touch a little bit, that, that maybe God, as the world has advanced, God hasn't, and he's kind of like right on the edge of being in control. And that's the hard thing. When you create an image of God based on what culture says and based on what you're feeling inside, and that image can oftentimes shape how you see the world and how you pray and how you live, that's not something that we should hang on to. But here's the truth. God is not old. He is eternal. And there's a big difference. God is not intimidated by anything because he is all-powerful. God is not confused by anything because he is all-knowing. God is not worried about anything because he is sovereign. God is in control. God always has been. He always will be on the throne and in control of the world. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, God says this about himself, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Nehemiah is saying, God, you're awesome and you're in control, even though everything looks messy. And, and we don't say that lightly because I realize talking about the sovereignty of God brings up some tensions, right? If God is sovereign, why is there all this suffering in the world? Or why isn't he doing anything about the suffering in the world? But God loved us so much to give us freedom, and we don't choose the right things all the time, and we bring about sin in this world. And God is doing things in this world, and God is redeeming things in this world, and God is asking us to be a part of the solution for these things in this world. And God will make everything right one day. The other tension we have is, if God is sovereign and in control, then why even pray? If he's going to do what he wants to do, why do we even ask him to do things? And there is a tension there. God's purpose will stand, but God calls us to pray, and God listens to our prayers. Pascal calls it the dignity of causality, that God has given us the dignity of causality, which means he's given us the dignity of allowing our prayers and our actions to change things. That's how he works. And so somewhere along this tension between the sovereignty of God and our prayers, we have to understand that God's purpose stands, but he listens to us. 
And we bring about change through prayer and action. And, and God, that's how he has it working in the system. And so the first thing that I love that he did was he acknowledged the sovereignty of God. And that's a big deal. And that's a big deal for us as well, remembering that God is still on the throne. The second thing we find is in verse 6 and 7. It says, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. And I love that he follows up the sovereignty of God by saying, you know what? We have sinned. My family has sinned. And I have sinned. What he's saying is, this is how we got here in the first place. The world is a mess, and I'm a part of that mess. Even though he was born in exile, even though he's a 1,000 miles away from the city that he's grieving for, he's saying, you know what? I'm part of that. It's this kind of collectivistic mindset. He's saying, I'm not innocent of this. It seems like everybody in our culture nowadays is walking around with a rock in their hand. And they're just waiting to throw it at somebody or something that speaks different than they speak or believes different than they believe. And it seems like both sides are shouting the same thing back and forth to each other. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. You're the reason that we're here in the first place. You're the reason that we're here in the first place. And it's like Nehemiah steps into the middle of that and he says, yep, you're right. It is my fault that I'm a part of this. I'm not innocent of all this. And I know in my own life that I can oftentimes be smug or prideful or moralistic, and I can lean towards those tendencies. And I can lean towards this idea, well, it's, I didn't do that, and that's not my idea, and I wasn't a part of that mess, which then I think gives me the ability to kind of speak over that mess. And yet Nehemiah steps up and he says, listen, all of us have sinned. My family has sinned. I personally have sinned. I'm not innocent of any of this. I'm part of this problem. And he confesses that to God. And I think that's the second thing that we can hang on to after we acknowledge that, God, yeah, you're in, in control. You are sovereign. And you know what? I'm a mess. And I'm part of this mess. And it kind of takes us down a few notches, doesn't it? It takes us off of our high horse a little bit. And I love that he hasn't asked God for anything yet. He's saying, God, you're in control, and I'm part of the mess. And then the third part we see is in verse 8 and 9. He says, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. He's calling upon the promises of God. He's using Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, and he's, he's putting them together. And he's, he's not saying, God, because I'm such a good guy, or God, this will really help me out in the long run if you do this. He's saying, God, you promised this, and it's going to bring honor to your name. And I think, man, I really want to know the promises of God. I want to know that when I'm praying to God, I'm praying things that are close to his heart and not things that are selfish. Because sometimes my prayers can be selfish. Sometimes my prayers can be all about me. My daughter, when she was little, she had this intense desire that people understood the concept of sharing. And before you think that's too noble, she really only had that desire when somebody else had something that she wanted. <laughs> right? 
that's when she was all about it. If you had a, a toy or if you had a snack, then she was all about sharing. And she would give you her mantra, share, share, dad, you said we need to share. You taught us to share, share, and then you'd have to give something to her. Now, if she had something that you wanted and you said share, she said get your own. <laughs> Even dad, you have a job. I'm like, well, who taught you this? I bought you that. Share. But her sharing idea was just selfish. It was, sounded like a great noble thing, but it was really just to serve herself. And I think sometimes we can do that even with the promises of God. We can try and figure out how the promises of God bless us specifically. Everybody's really great about Jeremiah 29, 11, which is an amazing verse, and it talks about you know, God giving us a hope in the future and prospering us and not harming us, and we love that. We don't really like John 16 that says, in this world you will have trials and tribulation and trouble. We're not claiming that promise all the time. But we need to know the promises of God, all of the promises of God. And I think that's a great handle that, that he somehow being that separated and in exile, he still had a handle on the promises of God and he's praying back a promise to God. And so I would remind us to continue to know the promises of God and to question ourselves, am I asking for this for my own agenda or for the glory of God? And the last thing we see is in, in verses 10 and 11, it's kind of it's going to lead us into next week a little bit. But he says, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. He's getting to this point where he's going to have an action step. This is getting to the point of the prayer where he's asking and he's going to take action. And it is going to spill into next week. And next week, we're going to see kind of what this action step was and, and the problem that he had and the thing that he asked. But know that he knew that he was a part of that solution. He wasn't saying, God, just fix what's going on there so I don't have to think about it. He was saying, how can I be a part of this? And over this five-month period, he prayed and he listened and God gave him instruction. And that's what he's leaning into. And, and we will get to that point in our prayers. And it's at the very end here, but of asking and acting. He begins with acknowledging God's sovereignty, then to confession, and then claiming promises of God, and then, okay, God, give me favor as I do what you've instructed me to do. And may we be a people that understand that prayer is where the action is. And honestly, as I was getting this message together, I just kept thinking, that's so cliche. I know coming to church and hearing the pastor say, pray, you're like, well, yeah, well, I would expect to hear the pastor say, pray. But seeing that this is where he started, and this is where we should start, and I don't know if we spend a lot of time praying. I don't know if we look at it as valuable, but I would say, pray. And I don't know how to make this message sticky other than if you would do me a favor, before you leave today, if you'd grab one of those encouragement cards or, or a piece of paper off the pad there and write the word pray on it. That's it. Just pray. And then put it in your car or tape it to your mirror. Leave it somewhere where you have breakfast in the morning every morning so that you just are constantly reminded, okay, prayer, prayer. I need to be a praying person. And take advantage of those times that you have. On your way to work, turn the radio off and pray. Pray real and not rote prayers at meals. Pray when you're putting your children to bed. Pray when you are going to bed. Pray first when you hear these tragic things happening. God is calling us to be a people of prayer.
Corey Tenboom said it this way, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer what directs us, or do we just pull it out when we get a flat? Do we just pull it out in an emergency? We see from his word that prayer is what should guide us and direct us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this story. Thank you for Nehemiah. And God, just personally, I appreciate his action and am challenged by his constant prayerful attitude to you. God, I pray that you would allow us to be people of prayer. That this congregation, that Salem Alliance would be known as a people who pray first. Who understand that you are in charge, who understand that we aren't perfect, and who continue to pray your promises and do your will. God, bless us with that um, just tenacity to lean into that prayer. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.